0: Welcome to the Investors Roundtable. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And I got a really special panel for you today. I know our normal programming is you have our one-on-one interview for Planet Microcap Podcast, but with our event coming up in a few weeks here, the Planet Microcap Showcase happening May 3rd through the 5th, 2022 at Bally's Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas, an in-person event. Go figure. Um, it, it, our website, actually, to register, you can still. It's www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com. And so I wanted to have a panel with a few of our speakers that are going to be at this event. And while we're we a generalist show, we wanted to do a little bit more in mining and resources this time around because it's, been, it's really been in the news. I mean, everything from... Uh, Inflation protection to um, nationalization and growth in domestic production. There's lots of different themes that all come back to what's found in the ground and needing that in order to consume some of the products and goods that we know and love today. So Having said all that, joining me today is some of our speakers and keynote speaker at the Planet Microcap Showcase. We have Tavi Costa, the Portfolio Manager at Crestcat Capital, David Erfley, a self-taught junior resource investor, analyst, and writer, as well as Gwen Preston, Independent Analyst and Editor of the Resource Maven. Everyone, thank you so much for joining me and for participating in our upcoming event. Thanks Thanks for having us. Wow, you guys... You guys all did that in unison. That's never happened before. <laughs> that was pretty cool. I, I'm going to tell everyone that they have to do it like like the mining. Why can't you be like the mining folks and be in unison? Uh,
1: well, this
2: is what you told us to say.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you,
2: Bobby, for being so.
0: Well, listen. I I wanted to start off and dig right in. Um, you know, uh, we we we'll, we'll get to backgrounds and everything probably a little bit later. But I, I wanted to get everyone's hot take right now. On where we're at in the metals and mining industry, I know probably each of you, each of you could probably talk for like three hours on that topic, but yeah, let, let, let's get your take. So, Gwen, you look like you're you're anxious to go first. So, Gwen, I'm going to go to you first.
3: <laughs> I always have lots to say, <laughs> um, although I'm in very fine company here. So, I'll uh, I'll say what I have, and I'm sure they'll have lots to add. I mean, I was at a birthday party this weekend from my you know friends of from my daughter and. Uh, the the other parents there, none of them were resource investors at all. Um, but, you know, conversations ebb and flow. And at some point, someone said, yeah, commodities are doing really well. What's up with that? And so people looked at me, and they're like, isn't that what you do? And so then, you know, you're put on the spot for a bunch of, you know, investing age adults who are interested in this space. And I'm like, okay, in a birthday party scenario, how do I just explain what's going on? And so it comes down to, we're in a period of significant growth. There is a recession risk that I'll get to in a moment, but we're in a period of significant growth and that combined with other factors has created significant inflation. And those things go hand in hand um, and the other factors certainly are in play. But when we get an inflationary situation like we have now, I mean, the CPI print that from this morning, strongest year over year inflation in 40 years, right? Inflation uh, drives commodities. And why is that? Because growth demand creates demand for commodities because supply response in the commodity world is slow. That's a fancy way of saying it takes a long time to build mines, right? So when demand ramps up for commodities, um, it takes a long time to, to meet that ramped up demand with supply. And so you get a fundamental mismatch there where supply is usually outstripping demand. This is being amplified right now by the Green Revolution for quite a few of the metals in play, like copper and nickel, right? these are, It's really amplifying um, the demand side of those metals. Um, and then these metals are priced in dollars. And so as the dollar weakens, the metal prices go higher. So that's why commodities outperform when you are in a growth-based inflationary environment. Now those other factors that fed into inflation are also very significant. Of course, they are the monetary response to COVID, which is actually just a continuation of the monetary response from the great financial crisis and all the money printing and all of this stuff. And those have really fed the inflation scenario here, which layers in the other metal that I think those of us on this call also pay a lot of attention to, which is gold. And so when you're in inflation, hard assets, commodities do well for those structural reasons. And gold does well because you need to protect your your wealth, right? Your purchasing power is is falling in half in seven years right now. That's insane, and so you try to do things that will protect your wealth. And that and gold is the most the longest established way to do that. So gold works really well in this inflationary environment. Now, there's I could go into lots of detail about money flows and why the pace of these things happening and not and blah blah blah, but I don't think that's that's the heart of the question right now. I did mention there's that recession risk. That is real for sure. Uh, I think the way that I capture that risk is that the supply demand gaps for a lot of these metals are pretty real. And the green energy revolution is a paradigm shift for metals demand for a a lot of these metals. And so even if there is a recession, I don't think that it changes the long-term or even the medium-term bullish outlook for the metals, but it does generate some near-term risk for things like copper right like there could be some some short term um some closer term um hiccups in the story but i think the big picture is very strong and i didn't touch on uranium but that's for another day
0: absolutely (laughs) gwen thank you so much for 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 kicking us off right there and actually some of those themes i think tavi will probably be touching on at during his keynote at our event with uh we have it titled a trifecta of macro imbalances so tavi love to get your take there and and you know, uh, do you have, do you agree, disagree maybe
1: with some of the things that, uh, that Gwen just said? No, I think we're in similar views here. Uh, when it comes to the trifecta, I'm happy to discuss that too. But, uh, to your question, I think, uh, one of the most important metrics that I've been watching is, is the capital spending cycle for mining companies and producers of different commodities. When you aggregate commodity producers today in any other natural resource industry, it's, it's, uh, It's quite interesting. We are basically at a 19-year low uh, of 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 the capex aggregate capex adjusted for GDP levels, and so it's you know for me it's difficult to not see a cycle here to the upside uh, at a time when it. While we love to uh, track and and look at and analyze the, the capital trends, there's a labor trend that is perhaps even more relevant. Um, you know the fact that geosciences enrollments have been in a declining trend for many many years uh, the difficulty of finding professionals that can navigate the space the fi- difficulty of finding uh, geologists that can actually um, uh, work for the companies we invest and so uh, that is a real constraint. you you're not able to uh, to have uh, uh, capital to really fix the issue it's those are things that take a long time to, uh, um, uh to unfold. Uh the cyclicality of of the fundamentals of the industry is are also very important. We're seeing companies is starting to make money uh on a free cash flow basis. About 73% of the miners are profitable today uh in the top 50 miners in gold and silver space. Um, and then we have the, the improvement of balance sheets. And so the the building of of NAT cash. Uh, and and their balances of uh, of not seeing the the crazy amounts of equity issuances and and, and even debt issuances that we saw in other uh, parts that were the the mark the peak of the cycle. So uh, when you when you start accumulating those uh, those arguments for uh, why we are in a in an early stage for something, and then on top of it you have this lack of discoveries, right? Because of the the lack of uh, of, of investments in, in exploration in general, um, uh, you're you're not seeing enough discoveries. Of of metals, and so uh, that may create a a supply problem here when it comes to uh, what we think it could be a some of the majors could be facing uh, what we call a supply supply cliff. Um, So, in order to replenish those uh, those production lines and some of those companies, I think we're going to see a discovery age, Uh, and and I cannot think of a world where gold prices in the next five to ten years would be uh, let's call it you know fifteen hundred dollars an ounce or even lower than that. I can't think of a world in that, that will print numbers like that. And so if that's the case, um, if there was ever a time to take the risk, the additional risk, but also the additional uh, level of uh, or profile of high returns uh, that you get by investing in that side of the industry, I've never seen a better time to do it. So that's why I've been so involved with exploration in general. Uh, and, and, and trying to figure out which ones are the most uh, uh, high quality projects or, or assets that we can own in this space. So uh, to me, and this is still very early. Uh, we haven't seen this institutional capital really come into the riskier parts of the industry, just the very uh, safer parts, uh, Newmont heating basically close to new highs, um, and, and so you can kind of see that the development has, happening, uh, has been happening mostly uh, on the companies that have generated free cash flow more consistently. Uh, but it's, I think it's a matter of time until that capital flows into other parts. So that would be my, my answer of where I think we are in the mining cycle in the early stages and process of accumulation of assets. And, and I think this is going to be a way of really building generational wealth in the following years.
0: Absolutely. Um, Listen,
1: Gwen and Tavi, just, there's so many different rabbit holes we can go down
0: with everything that you both just said. I'm I'm making sure I have notes because I want to come back to a few of those things, but David, give us some more rabbit holes to go down. You know what? Let's hear, let's hear your
2: take as well. Well, I'll just continue on with what Tavi mentioned about, uh, the uh, generalist investor not coming down the food chain into the, into the junior space, into the developers, explorers, and especially the early stage uh, exploration side of it. I mean, if you take a look at the gold price, uh, almost at all-time highs here, um, near $2,000 an ounce, and you take a look at the junior space, there's a complete disconnect right now. Um, you know, the generalist investor has gotten into the majors, and not even all the majors, just the top tier majors, like your new mods and your barracks, and your royalty companies like um, Franco Nevada and uh, Royal Gold, those are the stalwarts, you know, the generalist investors have come into ETFs, they've come into the major miners, they've come into the, the, the major, the, the big boy royalty companies, but they've yet to filter down into the junior space. And it's a, and I, I feel it's, it, there, there's a couple there's a, a few reasons for that. Um, the biggest reason has been the stock market has made uh, ter- tremendous gains over the past thirteen years, and appears to be topping here. So now, while we're starting to finally see the miners show relative strength against against the stock market for the first time in quite a long time, um, I, I I don't think it's going to filter down into the junior space until the gold price gets over that magic $2,000 price. I mean, that $2,000 ceiling has been in place for over a decade. And um, if you take a look at a big picture chart, um, it's formed what is is known as uh, a cup and handle formation. And this is the strong, the the most bullish uh, technical formation in technical analysis. And it rarely happens in big markets, where you see a a, a decade long cup and handle formation, and um, this not only is this happening right now in in the gold space, this consolidation, uh, but this also happened once before uh, in ni- from 1996 to 2004, the gold price formed a huge cup, decade long cup as well, and it took a couple of years for the handle right below 400, 425 to form. And this is when I first got involved in this sector. I, I came upon it about 20 years ago and I saw this cup and handle formation forming in this sector that nobody was talking about, that nobody cared about, nobody would, was interested in. And um, I really got involved and, and got excited about it as, um Mike, I've been a contrarian all my life, and I, I just I got so excited when I discovered this sector and I discovered this pattern. And once it broke out above four twenty five, completed that handle, the gold price ran to over seven hundred dollars in about six months. And the junior space just took off. The miners had already started to take off, and the juniors really took off. I mean, I got so I got so involved in this that I was I was in the process of restoring my home in uh, Pasadena, I bought a home and I was restoring it, doing all the work myself. And at that time, the real estate market was insane. And uh, there was so much equity in my home and I was almost finished with it, but I got into this sector so much, I got into investing so much that I sold my house, put all the proceeds into Juniors. I don't recommend this at home. (laughs) And at the time, I didn't have a lot of response. I didn't have a family, you know, it was just me. And, my portfolio tripled in, in about a year year and a half. and I really didn't know. looking back on it, I really didn't know what I was doing, even though at the time I thought I did because I took years to to you know to do all this research and really get into it. and um, I ended up quitting my job, traveling around the world, changing my life, right And I think we' we're, we're, we're on the precipice of a moment just like that right now because if, if you if you're a generalist, or and you're just getting into into this sector and you see how much the majors have moved you think oh look i missed it look at these miners look how much they've gone up but if you if you dive down deeper into the junior space the undervaluation of these companies de-risking these multi-million ounce deposits that are doing all the right things raising money at the right time keeping their share structures tight having district scale sized land packages with blue sky potential already proving up multi-million ounce deposits Investors don't care about them. They, they just don't care. They've left the sector in mass. And a big reason why is because the gold price consolidated between 1750 and 1850 there for almost a year. But at the same time, inflation was raging out of control. So costs on these projects were going up. And a matter of fact, a couple of companies came out and issued warnings that, hey, this, this project's going to cost 25, 30% more than we expected. And of course, their share price was hit and it also hit the sector. So now the $1,800 magic floor, which is what these these companies needed for, for generalist interest to come in, has now been raised to 2,000, I believe. So once the, the market finally begins to price in a $2,000 floor, I think that's when it's gonna happen. So if you're just getting into the sector, you picked a perfect time to discover because you've got all kinds of time, to to get in touch with these companies because they've got the time to talk to you get in touch with these companies do your due diligence make sure you get into the right companies because you just can't throw a dart right now it's a stock pickers market right now you got to be in the right companies so, so yeah sorry, go ahead. no no
0: it's you're you're causing me to have uh, flashbacks right now because <laughs> I remember, uh, um, my first investor conference. I told this on bill powers podcast, by the way, shout out to bill. He'll also be speaking at our event from mining stock, uh, mining stock education. He's the man. And I'm, I'm, pretty pumped for him to be there too, but I was telling him a story on how, um, my first investor conferences that I went to were all mining shows. It was back in 2011. I bought a silver coin for $34. I'll never, ever forget that. It's still a losing investment. And, um, I remember hearing, you know, some of the smart, it may not be in the long run. I saw Tavi look at me like, Bob, you might you hold, <laughs> hold on to that silver Yeah. A little crown, more right? patience, but, grass yeah, up. <laughs> yeah, but, um, <laughs> but um, I remember seeing some of the speakers at the time saying, you know, cause I think gold was, a, I mean it peaked at that point too, around 1800 at that time. And there was all this talk about 2000. It's gonna break 2000, to, gonna break it. Never did, but What's interesting that I've been seeing right now, and this might be kind of my basic Bobby question here, uh, being kind of more on the generalist side, but you see all these inflationary pressures happening. Gold clearly, has, it's gone way down and it's just kind of steadily, steadily, steadily climbed back up over the last 10 years. But at that time, I remember, you know, we were just coming out of the GFC. Everybody was flying to flying to gold, and you saw the price just skyrocket just so fast. Why are we seeing that same type of action with everything that's going on from a macro perspective right now? So who wants to, take, who wants to answer that one first? Gwen, Gwen, you want to take it?
3: Sure. Um, okay. I mean, I think the biggest... Um, The biggest thing that has held gold back and made it, like you say, this very slow progression to get back from uh, to recover from its bear market has been what these other two gentlemen mentioned, which is that the stock market has been darn strong. If you can just put money in the S&P and like get, you know, good, healthy returns on that without even thinking about it why would you worry why would you try and understand inflation and you know monetary the monetary base and you know money supply why would you why would you worry you can just buy index funds and that has been very true for a long time and so that mentality it's like a freighter right it just takes a really long time for that kind of mentality to turn around and so much money has been made in the broad stock market that guess what nobody wants that party to end and fair enough i get it right and so even with warning signs of what is likely changing there, and whether there's a recession or not. I mean, inflation makes a big impact on bottom lines, and the biggest correlation for you know, the stock market is, um, is sort of free cash flow, and guess what? Inflation eats away at is free cash flow because costs of everything go up and whatnot. So there's a lot of signs that that party is ending, but of course, no one wants it to end, and so the freighter is only very slowly turning around. And that is why this move to gold, I think, is quite slow. But in the face of that, the move has been pretty darn reliable, right? Sure. If you watch the gold on a daily basis, you can pull your hair out. I don't recommend watching gold on a daily basis. I recommend stepping back, right? Watching it, checking in once a week, checking in once a month if you want, because gold just keeps doing what it's supposed to do in the face of inflation. And we are in very weird waters too, right? Like, covid and the amount of money that was printed and the amount of stimulus that happened and zero interest rates and then this huge inflation and then the slow central bank response to that inflation we're in a weird place so it's also hard for people to really there's no playbook for exactly what one should do in this macroeconomic environment because we hadn't been we haven't been here before um really and certainly most a lot of investors who are alive today certainly including myself i haven't lived through significant inflation. That was in the 70s. And and so that is also playing a role. We don't have that lived experience. A lot of investors don't have the lived experience of very high inflation. So I think that's also muted the response to this raging threat to one's wealth. But I mean, it's it it just keeps happening, right? And I think the the signs are, the signs will only continue to get up in our faces. Of course, Russia's invasion of Ukraine poured a bit of fuel onto all of that fire by changing all kinds of uh, supply to commodities, and uh, and of, of course energy. And so that only has increased the inflation argument. So I do think the freighter's turning around. It just takes a while for a whole host of reasons that are particular to today.
0: Absolutely. So so thank you for that, Gwen. That. Gave me a, a lot of good perspective to think on as well. So, um, I, Tavi, I wanted to touch on with you something that that David also brought up um, about. You know, look now might be the time. It's not. It's more of a stock picker's market still. It sounds like in in early stage exploration, early stage junior mining. In your opinion, right now, you know, what are some of the things that you're you're looking at? That, that are interesting to you? Is there various jurisdictions? Are there metals in particular that folks should really, you know, actually keep an eye on? Or, you know, how, how should folks think about that?
1: So, so our team is is diverse and we've got Quentin Haney taking care of most of the geology and Kevin Smith that takes care of most of the, the quant models that we build in housing. And I do most of the macro. And so my focus has been, how do I manage to, uh, fine hedges when it comes to uh, also carrying such a large book uh, on, on commodities uh, like we, we, we have currently. And so I spend most of my time thinking about how do I, how do I position ourselves in a way that if we're wrong about this, uh, we'll still make money in other, other things that are, I think it's potentially just as exciting as, as precious metals. Um, certainly, we've been very geographically focus in, in the Golden Triangle, Newfoundland, uh, Nevada has been uh, great places where we've been accumulating assets. Um, we've been uh, exiting some, some of our uh, positions in Mexico. Uh, we've got positions in Brazil, uh, some parts of Brazil, um, even Bolivia. So it's, it's not so much, uh, I guess, a jurisdiction, but uniquely to what's the position of the company to accomplish what they have to accomplish in those areas. Uh, and, and, you know, how much is our understanding of, of their uh, probability of, of accomplishing those goals uh, and, uh, and if, it's, if it's priced in an evaluation of the, of the, of the asset. So, uh, you know, we spent a lot of time uh, trying to systematize the Lausanne curve. Uh, and, and so the idea being uh, really figuring out what's, you know, how much value is in the ground, how much is it going to take for dilution, uh, for CapEx to take those assets to production, um, and understanding what is the potential appreciation that we have ahead of us or not um, or when is it time to, uh, to be exiting those strategies. So uh, there's a whole development on, on that side of it. but I've never been so excited about so many big macro themes happening at all at once. Um, you know you you know uh, we were talking about a little bit about inflation. I an mean, inflation problem creates and un- unlocks so much value when it comes to ways of, of of investing. You know, there's this fallacy that equity markets do very well during uh, during inflationary periods. That's not true. Uh, back in the 70s, and 1910s, actually, the Dow Jones uh, had a, a negative performance in real terms, and commodities really outperform financial assets at those times. Tangible assets did very well, in, including housing. Um, and so I think that those are the big themes that we may see where it's not just precious metals. Precious metals is a big part of it because we find a lot of inefficiencies in that part of the industry that no one wants to really allocate capital or deploy capital into. Uh, But agricultural commodities look interesting. Brazil as an economy or as a a Brazilian assets look extremely uh, interesting when it comes to valuations that we can find relative to other places. Hedging the technology factor. I mean, what is... What about software companies maintaining those very high multiples in a, in, a, in a place where cost of capital is rising? What about squeezing margins of companies that have to uh, uh, you know, navigate in a space where material costs is rising, wages and sal- salaries are, are rising, um, you have energy costs rising, and now uh, the cost of debt is rising too. So so how do we, you know, how do we find the best shorts in that side of the, the book? Um, the, the cost of capital from developed economy side, the treasury shorts and, and the German boom shorts and and interest rates in developed economies that are, we think are likely to, to increase to a certain degree until we see yield curve controls. And so that's what's in my brain right now to, to try to figure out what you know how we can best hedge our portfolio. But a lot of ways to do it. Oil has is, is been a great trade for us too, aside from precious metals. But... Um, yeah, we carry a very big book of commodities and mostly it's in base metals and precious metals is the biggest part. Uh, but uh, there are a lot of other things happening at the same time.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for that, Tavi. And and David, you know, actually, I want to throw the same question to you. You know, um, you you also mentioned that you really need to dig in, do the homework, you know, not to plug our event again, but there's going to be 18 to 20 names that you know, if you guys want to show up in person, we'd love to have you there and and that you can interview management and whatnot, you know, but for you, when you, from when you got started to where you're at today, I mean, what's some of the nuance that you've learned and that you now want to bring to finding quality ideas right now, when you do talk with management teams and evaluating their potential investment ideas?
2: Yeah, that's that's a great question, and it's all encompassing, and it's it's ever changing uh, because the marketplace is ever changing. I mean, um, you know, you've you've heard how everyone the first thing they always bring up is management, how important management is, but it's not only the management, but it's their access to capital, it's it's their knowledge of the you know of, of the market, you know, keeping their share structure tight, you know, knowing their audience. Um, you know, if, if, if they have a, a large U.S. audience, know the importance of possibly moving towards a, uh, a, uh, a big board uh, listing on the Amex or even the NASDAQ. We even have some gold companies on the NASDAQ right now. Because you know, in this environment, you know, once in uh, you know, generalist investors finally do find our sector, um, a lot of them are going to do it through their Robinhood accounts, and they and, and they're unable to buy pink sheet listed stocks on their Robinhood accounts. They're gonna they're gonna, you know, they're gonna start to go in to you know, Amex listed uh, and Nasdaq listed and and New York Stock Exchange listed uh, juniors and and major miners. Um, but as far as you know. Uh, what my portfolio consists of, you know, I'm just uh, in in juniors, and I, I concentrate on three sub specific subsectors. sectors. Um, as um, as a lower risk base to the portfolio, I have growth oriented producers um, that that are growing their company not through debt, and that's very that's very difficult to find because you know debt is a way a lot of these companies uh, grow their grow. Their their, their their size. So um, I've, I've got a, a handful of those, but it's mostly developer explorers. And um, this is where management is really key. And the first question I always ask them is, how many shares do you own? How much money did you pay for them? Because you gotta really be careful. A lot of these companies, you know, they have founder shares, you know, they have really cheap penny, two pennies cent stock that, that, that they own or they're only invested through options. So you want to make sure that they have their their money invested as well because I run my business the same way. You know, I I if, if I'm gonna recommend a stock, I own the stock. And not only do I own the stock, but I'm but I'm gonna write a report on what on all my due diligence I've done on this company and give you the opportunity to get into it at the same time I do. I don't buy the stock and then recommend it to my subscribers. You know, we are all, I, I, I do the report, send it out, and we're all trying to get in at the same time. It's kind of a, we're all in this together newsletter. And that's the way I, I, I want to invest in that's the way I want to have these companies run their business as well. Um, because, you know, there's, you know, I would say 80 to 85% of these juniors, you know, there, there a lot of them are lifestyle companies and, um, they're, they're not de-risking viable projects and they're, they're not ex- exploring for, for deposits on, in areas that I would want to invest in or I see the, the early, you know, uh, chip samples or, or soil samples or whatever they've come up with and I'll look at their track record and I wouldn't touch that. So there's a, there's a big checklist I have to go over before I'll even consider a position but the biggest one is management and, and how much stock they own in the company. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. I I'm having, I'm having, you gave me another flashback to uh, being at our event and, you know, talking to one of my invest our investors, I was there being like, sounds like an interesting deal. Talking about junior mining guy owns maybe half a half a percent of, you know, he has no ownership stake whatsoever. I don't even know if he put any of his own money in the deal you know, despite how interesting that project might've been. But, you know, Gwen, I'm gonna to come to you on this one. I, I've, I've been at those events and um, I don't think we have any companies like that at our event coming up, but um, I've been at, at those events where, you know I, I've interviewed all these companies I've interviewed over two five 500,000, I, I can't even count anymore, um, uh, junior miners that, you know, you hear some of the answers, you hear where they're drilling, you hear where they're at and you're like, okay, that, that, okay, you know, I got you. Um, you know, but from a generalist side, you know, how, how should we really evaluate our risk when it comes to hearing that idea and not just throwing it right into the trash bin, you know, wanting to keep that open mind, but also still being like, to a degree,
3: you know, so how would how, you answer that? I think that's a really useful question, especially for an audience that is not uh, particularly familiar with exploration and mining, because it takes a big pool of knowledge, sort of a wide and deep pool of knowledge, to understand the risk and reward setup of a junior stock in our space like a lot you got to understand geology you got to understand the capital markets particular to this sector you have to know people how are you supposed to know the people in mining like it's it's difficult to do you have to understand the macroeconomics and what they're doing to the metal price for that metal in particular it's tough right and then there's the everybody always asks what about jurisdiction so yeah you got to understand permitting and jurisdiction and all of these things it's a tough space to understand so i always answer this question starting with the investor. And I say, first of all, I love that you're interested in learning about or getting exposure to metals, mining, commodities, however you want to phrase it. My first question is always, how much knowledge do you want to gain? Time do you want to commit? And risk do you want to take on? And those are all very related. The companies that require the most knowledge and time, keeping up with their news flow, and carry the most risk, um, they're all the same they're the juniors because you got to understand the geology like there's there's just a lot more um, balls up in the air when it's a junior company and if the answer is well like i don't want to spend a huge amount of time and i don't want to like do another d- degree in uh, in to to learn about this and I, and i don't want to take on a huge amount of risk that's okay the cool thing about a good metals market is that you can do really well in fairly low risk stocks. I mean, the really low risk stuff, the ETFs of major miners, they have already done very well. And the perspective on this panel is certainly that we are, there is a lot of upside ahead for a lot of different metal prices. And so you can do darn well just in a, in a, in a fund of major miners. And that's a really appropriate and good answer for some investors. Now, if you wanna lean in a bit more, and learn a bit more and pay a little bit more attention to the news flow, then that's cool too. And um, so you just have to first decide what your commitment and risk is. And if you want to lean in and learn, then don't do it alone. So find either, you know, chat rooms where people are talking about this stuff. There's some great books out there where you can read about this stuff. And there's people out there who like to talk about what they're doing. So David and I write newsletters for paying subscribers about what we're doing. So The reason I started my newsletter is because I love investing in this space, but it's my full time job. And it's hard for me to keep up with this space, right? With the companies and all the developments and stuff full time. And I work way more than 40 hours a week. So I do this because if I'm going to put in all this time, why shouldn't I share the results of that, turn it into a business, and let other people? get some ability to participate at the high risk level without having to commit 50 hours a week. So anyways, that's, I I say, if you want to play the high risk stuff, absolutely do it. Understand that it's high risk and it requires paying attention and knowledge, and then find ways of getting some of that knowledge from others, whether it's a newsletter writer or a forum, or like, I don't know, maybe your neighbor is really into it, or your your dentist, I don't know, find find a community of people who you can do it with. Um, And then, when once you've got that then you'll start to understand which are your first questions so david is always how much does the does you know does the ceo own mine is always what is the specific plan for the next 6 months to create new value for shareholders right like you will figure out what your key question is that tries to capture whether the stock make sense. Um, but it you, you can't just come up with that question like this, you got to figure out where you're starting from. And you got to learn some stuff first, and then you'll figure out what that question is.
0: Absolutely that's a great answer and I'm glad you threw in plugs for both your newsletter and also for David's <laughs> newsletter because that, that was that was the that was the, the setup uh- <laughs>
3: <laughs> and I mean you can also follow I mean like Crescat Crescat anytime Crescat invests in a company we get to see that that's happening it's announced assuming they take a, a, a stake of some size it's announced and we all pay attention to that stuff. We're like oh Crescat likes it and I bet and I know that companies like that, Got a bunch of phone calls from people like me and investors who are who want to learn more because Tavi and kevin and quentin all decided that it was a good stock so again this is part of the group effort that you figure out you need to be successful here
0: what are the what of the 13f filers do you also look forward to see that they you know if they took a meaningful stay? i mean Everybody, it, I think even generalists know of Sprott at this point, and and Rick Rule, and, and well, I think Rick is now he's now retired. But um, you know, what are some what are some other funds that folks? Well, he's not. I, he's more I think managing someone. But like, uh, but if if who are some of these other institutions that folks should maybe look at to see what they're what they're looking at? Um, Go ahead, Tavi, David, who who wants to answer? <laughs>
3: I mean, I'll just name a few. I mean, certainly like Rousseau Asset Management. So Warren mm-hmm. Irwin is a good one to watch. I certainly watch Prescott. Uh, there's a few gold specific funds, um, you know, like there's the gold 2000s and there's there, there, there's groups out there. Um, there's a lot, though. There's more than you think um, who have smart groups behind them. Um, so it, it's hard to just name, a, it's hard to name them because there's actually a lot. And I think it's kind of an interesting question because like you, you mentioned Eric Sprott, there was a time when Eric Sprott was the main source of capital for junior exploration. Yes. Literally, the man funded our sector for like a two-year time frame. And anytime his name got announced, a flood of money went into that company. And that was great. But then it kind of, the effect diluted itself because he's has a lot of money. He's been very successful. And so, you know, you can only do the same thing so many times, you can't get the same result. So then actually, Crescat was the one that stepped next into that role, I would say. And, and they're the ones that people... Are like oh, Crestcat's moving on it now um, because there's that technical grounding with Quinton. So on the exploration side, I think there's a lot of confidence in there. Um, but yeah, there's there's other groups out there for sure that that fill those same sorts of shoes.
1: When you're too nice, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to mention one name that I think it's important and not a lot of people pay attention to, but Michael Gentili is a smart, very smart investor. Uh, we certainly uh, keep in touch with him and and. Uh, and like to invest alongside. I mean, with, um, there's uh, other investors that we, we tend to uh, pay attention to, obviously some other newsletter writers like Bob Moriarty is, is a person that is uh, very involved to, with what we do. Um, you know, we, we keep in touch with, with him. Um, I would say uh, Willem from, uh, from Discovery Fund is, is also a smart guy and um, great to have him in our side when we do. Um, from a geologist's perspective, maybe, uh, I guess, Brent Cook is, uh, is a smart guy as well. Um, everyone should be following him. And it's, uh, it's, it's hard because at, at this side of the industry, uh, geology is, is almost more relevant than anything else. And so you, you have to get that part uh, you know covered, uh, which a guy like myself, you know I, I don't have the ability to have that. So Quentin is a person who can discern if, if this is a good or bad investment from that perspective. And then we come in from the financial analysis side and then management team as well, which I think is very discretionary, um, but uh, extremely important. I mean, it's, it's very difficult. It's just industry is already risky, let alone. And and if if you don't have a a good technical team and a management team, it's just impossible to succeed here. So um, those are, those are big parts, but I think those folks are, are are people you want to be paying attention to.
0: Got it. Yeah, talk to talk to Brent. Brent's been my guy forever. Love Brent, Brent and Joe, the team over at Exploration Insights. So that's a, that's a, happy to give them a plug here today too. But um, Tavi, wanted to come back to you actually on a on, on a, a macro question for you. And D- this was something that David brought up earlier about how. Um, well, let me take a step back. I've been doing in the last last year when I was doing um, interviews for for Precious Metals, um, our lead sponsor. Well, shout out to Precious Metal Summit. Um, a lot of the interviews and a lot of the companies were talking about that idea of near term production. You know, all right, we're almost there. We're near term within the next, I, I guess, in some definition, was either six to eighteen months. And David brought up this idea of how there's supply chain issues even for those who are in production, and especially probably for those who are talking about that near-term production. So how has that macro trend of supply chain issues affected some of these companies that have had and, and announced publicly these near-term production plans?
1: Oh, massively. I mean, it's it's uh, maybe, I mean, every every part of the industry has been uh, uh, impacted by that, and, and maybe to a, a lesser degree, perhaps an exploration side, but certainly has been very difficult. And even the infrastructure on labs uh, to getting uh, lab results and and uh, availability of uh, of, of, uh, of of folks that that can allow us to drill and 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 really uh, continue the exploration process of uh, of any of those programs, uh, but I think it's been um, you know. <laughs> we haven't even seen a, a more deglobalized world just yet I mean this is just the beginning imagine if we do have something along those lines which I think is very possible um, you know geopolitical tensions started back in 2016 arguably uh, with uh, the issues with China and US and things kind of escalated from that now we have Russia and Ukraine in a completely different setup uh, Middle East now also getting involved and so there's it's just so many uh, different angles of that that will uh, also impact the the logistics of, uh, of 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 supply chains, and the other thing to think about is, is some central banks are starting to figure out that maybe lockdowns and, and COVID lockdowns, and not a lot of people are thinking about this, but uh, are really uh, uh, monetary tools. Um, believe it or not, some um, I I think what China is doing is pretty clear. Um, you know, it's it's damaging to the commodities market in the short term. Um, I don't think it's a sustainable solution to the problem. You know, an economy that you have. All the issues going on in terms of the the banks down 30 plus percent and all the assets down over 30 to 40 percent uh housing uh, uh market completely collapsing and it's it's difficult to not make a case that they're in a major downturn so uh, again just a, a u.s company today setting up their businesses will they would they really go to china and 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 set up a plan for the next three to five years um, to uh, to have their manufacturing plant of their their goods and services in in, in China for the next uh, five to ten years or three to five years, I don't think so. I think they're going to look for alternatives here. So what we've seen is this moving commodities through a supply constraint issue, but we haven't seen yet the demand side of it really being driven by uh, uh, what if we see non-residential spending on construction in the U.S. in order to have that infrastructure, or I should say um, uh, the whole manufacturing side of of that process being uh, happening in the U.S. and and locally in other developed economies. Well, that's going to drive material costs too. So uh, there's a whole theme there that not, not a lot of people are thinking about, but it's um, um, so, so many ramifications of all this. So I'm, yeah, I think this is going to continue in a, in a large way. I'm, I'm worried about. Um, I don't think it's doom and gloom for investors. There's very uh, incredible opportunities that are not priced in accordingly yet. Um, and uh, but it's it's been a problem. And what I like about exploration is the fact that you're. You're you're almost locking in the value of the mineral in the ground that empirically also has a much higher leverage to the to the price of gold and silver over the cycle. Um, and you know if there again if there was ever a case to be investing in that part of the industry, I think that that case is 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 today as strong as it could be. So uh, you know a lot of a uh, lot of ramifications from the supply constraint issues, but. Uh, I think it's kind of uh, uh, still at the, still developing, still early stages of all that because uh, uh, there's a domino effect that happens through that. And the commodities market is a great example of that with natural gas, lumber prices, and then you have, uh, you know, ammonia prices and then at food prices and then it impacts uh, other parts of the food chain. Um, so, you know, that domino effect, it becomes uh, very relevant for the global stage over time. So, uh, anyways... I, I like. I, I don't want to stop. I'm like, keep going. Like, this is <laughs>
0: what we want, we want to get more. I'm sure everybody listening is like, Bobby, shut up. Can you just talk, can you guys keep going? But, um, David, I, I, since since you brought up that point about supply chain and 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 how that's affecting uh, potentially not just juniors but kind of the industry as a whole, um, you know, from from you know from your perspective as a private investor deploying capital here, you know what what have other than the things that you've already kind of said and talking to management and you know how much how much how much stock do you own you know and they go from there um you know what are what are some of the other things that then uh, do you take from that and now I'm going to take action here
2: well first of all uh the main thing is not to get uh, married to any of these stocks that's that's the main thing um and but a, a bigger thing is you know, don't put a lot of uh, money into, into one particular stock. You know, I have a rule that I don't put any more than 4% of my investment capital into any junior, no matter how good it looks. You know, I mean, there's, there's been times when I've, I've found, i found a junior. I'm like, Oh my God, look at this. Look at this. Thing. It ticks all the boxes. This thing is going to go to the moon. I'm going to, I'm going to take a flyer and I'm going to go ahead and put 10% into the stock. I've never done that because, it's usually those stocks, <laughs> those are the ones that end up disappointing you the most. <laughs> um, you know, it, it doesn't always happen, but, you know, it, sure, it does happen a lot where I, where I find a stock and I went, okay, I go, okay, this is, this is, a, this is a great company, it ticks all the boxes, and I have, you know, had a, a five to 10 bagger on it, but, um, you know, I do tons of due diligence and, that, and that's what everyone should do. I mean, I've watched stocks for years before I invested on, in, 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 in them before. And Novo Resources was one of them, and Tavi's very familiar with with, with Novo. Um, and that's where I met Quentin, and I every time I saw Quentin, I I knew him about his theory in the Pilbara, and I always asked him how he was doing, you know, um, you know what 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 uh, progress has he made, and then there was a conference that I went to, and he said, you know, I think I I think we found the key, and we're doing a private placement, and fortunately, I listened to him, and I got into the private placement. And I got into the right thing at the right time. You know, that that's what you do. You know you set yourself up to be in position to get lucky. You know because you know let's face it. You know when we do have those ten baggers, a lot of it is luck. But you have to put yourself in the position to be lucky. And to, and to do that, you buy a basket of these things. And um, like I said, you do tons of due diligence. And if you don't have the time to do that due diligence, and you can you can invest into a newsletter like myself or Gwen's. And, um, you know, we do the work for you, but um, I've seen, you know, I've been in, like I said, I've been in the sector 20 years and the whole time I've been in this sector and I've done quite well, the gold stocks have been in a bear market in relation to the price of gold. That's, that's hard to believe, but it's true. The gold stocks have been in a bear market in relation to the price of gold for the past 25 years. That's incredible, Hmm. but it's true. The gold price has gone from $250 at the turn of the century to nearly $2,000 in a decade. We had a huge bull market in the mining stocks and saw the HUI Gold Bugs Index go up 1,600%. And yet, inside of that, the gold stocks have been in a bear market in relation to the price of gold. And if you take a look at a long-term chart of the HUI to to the gold index, it's created this huge, huge decade-long base and once it breaks out of that base gold stocks will finally be in a bull market in relation to the price of gold that hasn't even happened yet and yet we've we've had not more more than one cycle where you know investors made a lot of money in this sector so you know that's that's what keeps my juices flowing that's what keeps me excited even during the frustrating times that we're having right now because you know usually you know this always happens the miners take off first You know, then the royalty plays start to start to take off, you know, and and then the the junior developers take off and then the early stage companies take off. Well, we've had the miners take off. We've had the the royalty companies take off. Yet nobody's interested in the juniors yet. And um, we know it's coming. We all know it's coming. but We just don't know when. But, it, but the good news is it gives us all this time to do all this research and accumulate the right companies and have a basket of the right companies at the right time. And I focus on big, big is, is what I like. I like big projects, big land packages, big jurisdictions and um, de-risk if a if, if company's de-risking and they're getting towards that finance stage, you know, they're, get, they're, they're almost to shovel ready or whatever. Um, you know, those are the companies I like, um, and also like earlier stage PE, PEA stage as well. You know, if you've got that management team, that's serially successful, you know, they've done it before from, from, uh, discovery to, to construction, to production, uh, they've sold companies, you know, for, 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 you know, 10, 15, 20 baggers for their shareholders. They're out there. You can find them. They're easy to find, you know, hitch, you know hit your ride on their tails because you know the serially successful management teams are serially successful for a reason um and they've done this before and you know they're gamblers but they're smart gamblers and they and they gamble with their own money
0: awesome I was just feel i'm like ready to run a marathon after david finishes his, his answers you know i, I just I, I i love it um and david real quick are you a shareholder in
2: novo resources not anymore okay i'm not anymore Got uh, but I, but I still watch it, and um, it, it's the 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 the, uh, the, uh, the the market value right now, the market cap right now is becoming very attractive. But I'm not a shareholder. Gotcha. Yeah, no, we've interviewed
0: Quentin a few a few times actually over the last couple of years uh, uh, on, on our YouTube channel. So if I ever go check some of those out. Um, so we're about there. I know uh, we're on a slight time constraint. So I want to get everyone's final take before uh, we, we got to give you a little more. You know, we got to stop somewhere so that when you come to Vegas, you know, you can see the full, the full spiel. So, uh, Gwen, give us your, your final thoughts here. Um, I don't know, moving forward in 2022, what they can expect in Vegas, you know, you have your pick.
3: Uh, who, how can I do it in a short time frame? I want to draw some attention to uranium. I mentioned it in my first answer. Um, I'm very bullish on uranium there. It, I could spend 20 minutes explaining why, but there's sort of a past, present and future within the uranium sector that um, create a very bullish setup. There's new players in the space who are who are eating up a lot of supply in a market that doesn't have, it, that has a supply gap ahead. Um, nuclear power is very important and more important uh, with the green revolution and with Russia, Russian energy being um, becoming the uh, different thing today than it was a month and a half ago. Um, and so I'm pretty bullish on uranium. Uh, so I just wanted to, add that into the mix because none of us had had the chance to talk about that and all this conversation we've had about how to choose stocks one of the really interesting things about uranium is it it was in the bear market for so long that the bear market kind of like did the due diligence for you by killing all of the crappy stocks like they just couldn't make it through a 13-year bear market like it just it's not a possibility or a nine-year bear market whatever it was so you I don't want to say you can buy anything that has the word uranium in it, but you it's closer to true, certainly, than it is for any other metal out there. Um, and uh, there's there's also lots of good resources out there to help you pick stocks that are, are more likely to outperform. Um, but uh, I, if you're interested, I'm more than happy, anybody can send me questions on uranium and I'd be more than happy to talk about that.
0: Very cool. That was great. Thank you, Gwen. Um, uh, Tavi, you want to give your final thoughts, what to look forward in 2022 and or your uh, your upcoming keynote?
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll be talking a little bit about the political constraints that I think the US economy is facing, but this is really a global problem when it comes to developed economies. Um, I think we all try to look back in history and pinpoint uh, other periods that may serve as an analog to today's environment, but this is truly unique when it comes to uh, the amount of imbalances happening all at once—that's so a trifecta of macro imbalances that uh, I'll hopefully be sharing more there. Um, I am—I'm focused on. Look, I think I think we're going to see another uh, opportunity to be shorting Treasuries here soon. Um, things got way oversold recently, um, and I think this is going to become the story. Why am I focused on this? Because. Um, after that bigger move that we may see later this year uh, with the Federal Reserve going from the largest buyer of those, those instruments to now a seller, perhaps, uh, on top of inflation not being transitory, on top of other economies also not purchasing as, as much as they used to, on top of the banks, U.S. banks that are not buying as much as they, they're supposed to be buying. Um, and so I think that that can become the story. So that's why I'm focused. And once we hear the words of uh, from any Fed member about yield curve control, I think that's what's going to be, or any sort of mechanism to cap yields in the long end. I think that's what's going to take gold to a a real violent move. I mean, it's quite normal to see gold struggle after hitting new highs um, throughout history, at least. And then, so we went through that. Now, um, one of you spoke about the 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 and handle. I mean, you know, the same happening with silver too. I think if we get some sort of narrative about yield curve control really straightening up that case for gold, I think we're going to see a violent move to the upside. And that's, I think, I think we're going to see the lead with, with the miners. I think we're going to see uh, the riskier parts of the industry now starting to lead the way, including silver. Um, so those are the things that are in my mind and the possibility of recession, you start piling up all this recession indicators are starting to show up after once in a lifetime boost in fundamentals that we saw financed by the government uh, with uh, stimulus checks and all the, the, the you know reckless amount of fiscal spending we've seen. Um, and now everything is rolling over from ISF, ISM manufacturing, the, the earnings are at peak levels, margins are at peak levels. Um, and I just don't think that that's sustainable. So that development is going to be another thing with yield curve inversions um all that is is are things that are, i think will be relevant for the following uh months not even years but really months uh of uh of portfolio management so those are the things i'm uh i'm watching for
0: very good and david your final take get us get us pump get give me pump for vegas i mean you already have but get 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 me do it again okay do it again
2: well I, I know gwen has to go so yeah I'm, I'm gonna be brief but um i'm just looking forward and the, the 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 dichotomy has changed here and you know the the big event of uh, recently was the united states taking russia off the swift international current uh, system investing investing system and um and now Saudi Arabia is talking about buying uh, oil in yuan as opposed to to dollars. I think the, the it's it's going to be a slow shift, the dollar losing its world uh, reserve currency status. This is huge, and this is this is what gold is sniffing out. I think I mean because basically gold always has its best moves when people lose their lose their faith in central bank policies, and I think that's happening right now. So. Um, I'm I'm not looking forward to that uh, uh, taking place, and what I what I buy at the supermarket, and what I buy, you know, uh, in my everyday life, watching things go up. Because unlike everybody here, I lived through that, you know, th- through the stagflationary '70s. You know, I went through my father's change, looking for silver dimes and quarters. I still have them, by the way. And um, at that time, you know, we had we had um, 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 a Federal Reserve Chairman who was able to to basically uh you know stop inflation stop the stagflation by raising interest rates from 4.75% to 20%. um you know but back then you know the the, NAG, the US national debt was less than a less than a trillion dollars it was only 900 billion dollars and our debt to gdp was only 34 35%. well now our debt is over 30 trillion and it's doubled over the past 8 years and our debt to gdp is over 130%. so um, you know, and the global debt is over 300 trillion. So, you know, people are losing faith in monetary systems, because these central banks are trapped. So um, I'm looking forward to see what, the, what when, once the gold price does get over that magic 200 $2,000 floor and begins to build a floor there, what it's going to do to the junior sector finally, because I know it's coming, I just don't know when it's going to happen. Very good.
0: All right, well, I think that's a great place to end it. David, Gwen, Tavi, thank you all so much for joining me today on this Investors Roundtable episode. For those listening and would like to see these brilliant people speak in person at our event in Las Vegas, the Planet Microcap Showcase. Again, go register, planetmicrocapshowcase.com. Do it quickly. And um, yeah, thank you all. Look forward to seeing you soon.
2: Thanks thank for you. having us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.